Welcome to Rumble's Trip Vermont. This far north, if you ask anybody in this town, they'll tell you straight out, Montpelier doesn't hear us. They just don't care about us up here either way. But in our own small communities, we are somebody. But when, when your voice is gone, what is left? There's, there's nothing. That was Lincoln Patel, longtime school board chairman from Holland, Vermont, a small town way up on the Canadian border. This is a show about something that happened here in Vermont last winter. It was a terrible winter, and toward the end, we were all pretty fed up and tired and broke, and everyone was worried about taxes because they're too high. And right in the middle of all that came a piece of school legislation called Act 46. It was a school consolidation bill that promised to lower our taxes, or that's what they were saying in the news in the beginning. And then some time passed, and all of a sudden they were saying that the school consolidation bill was really about equal opportunity for all Vermont kids. Well, the truth is, it wasn't really clear how it would do either of these things, but since everyone was fed up being cold and paying taxes, the bill passed. And here we are. It's nearly a year later, and there's still plenty of mystery about how or whether this legislation will lower our taxes, how it will improve education for our kids, and by whose standards. And there are even some pending lawsuits about the constitutionality of some parts of this legislation. But that's not what today's show is about. Today's show is about how this legislation will change important parts of our culture in small Vermont towns, which, when you think about it, seems like a pretty big thing, but I haven't been hearing about it much in the news. This is a show about self-governance, a concept we've held dear in this state for hundreds of years. This legislation wipes out that venerable, totally unenviable institution called the local school board. These are the citizens from our town who are accountable to our children's education and the way our tax dollars are spent. But under Act 46, and for the first time in Vermont history, we won't have any direct authority over our own schools. And if other school consolidation efforts around the country tell us anything, it is that once small-town voices are silenced, small schools close. So this is also a show about what schools mean in the lives of small towns. You'll hear again from Holland School Board Chairman Lincoln Patel, from author and Middlesex Town Meeting moderator Susan Clark, and from John Castle, the superintendent of the North Country Supervisory Union, which is one of the most rural areas of our state. Here's Susan Clark. When you talk to Vermonters about why they run for office, they usually don't say things like, you know, I'm on the planning commission because I'm, I was angry about a particular issue in town or because I own a gravel pit or those kinds of things. Usually when people run for public office, they say, it was my turn. Somebody has to do this and I've, I've reached the age where I need to do this or I have a kid in the school and, and you know, it's, I should really help out. That's the kind of public engagement that grows um, our civic infrastructure. 
Um, there's a piece of uh, vocabulary here that's useful, and it's the most boring word in the world. It's the, it's the word district. The district level for the last many decades in Vermont, generally speaking, a district is usually along the same lines as a town. That is, that's why this is such a major, major moment in Vermont history, is that those district lines um, would uh, dramatically change under this redesign. And districts, instead of being along town lines, will um, be in clumps of uh, 900 students. Um, and if you think about it, that's, you know, for a lot of towns, that's like five or six or more towns um, become the district. And, and that district will have one school board. So instead of in Middlesex, I have five people on my little school board. What are the chances I'm going to know one of those five people? Pretty high. What are the chances I'm going to run into my school board member at the store um, uh, or, or someplace and maybe have a conversation with them? Pretty high. Uh, how hard is it for me to get to a school board meeting? Well, it's right in my town. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's right over there at the school. So my democratic touch my ability to understand what the school board is doing, my ability to influence their decision, my level of comfort at going to one of their meetings and saying something is relatively high. But under the preferred model in Act 46, you know, that, that model pink slips, uh, you know, two-thirds of the, of the school volunteers in Vermont. Um, it basically says we, we don't need your volunteer time anymore. This is Superintendent John Castle. Without direct participation and involvement by people on a local board, and it really isn't local control. I understand that there is a fallacy to local control. There are federal laws and there are state laws and there are SUs, but without a meaningful voice with some level of authority where, where people say, well, they can have school councils. Well, school councils just don't cut it. I mean, it, they have no authority. And so people will say, well, why Annie up for that? Why am I going to spend the hours and hours that school board members spend is because they believe that their contribution has value. And it does. And I've seen school board members avail themselves hours and hours beyond the role of, you know, attending meetings to support a facilities project, let's say, because they have a background in understanding building or facilities. And so they will meet with the principal, call vendors, all of those things. Otherwise, we will have to shift that to a bureaucratic role, which many small schools don't have the capacity for. So you'll, you'll create some role at central office for something like that. Whereas that social capital on a school board, it's free. And people give that willingly because they believe in their community. And when you think of a, of a multi-district supervisory union such as North Country that has 13 different districts, and in some cases people are 35 miles on one side of Newport and 35 miles on the other side of Newport, when you take away their voice and their ability to make decisions and self-determination about their own community school, I think it really will marginalize those people. And in many ways, when you look at the loss of jobs, loss of opportunities, people feel marginalized already. What do they have? A town like Holland has no store, has no post office. The school is what brings people together. I see Act 46 as dragging Vermont uh, 
kicking and screaming into the 1950s. You know, thanks very much. But this great new process that you created is suburbanization at its worst. It is it, all of the sense of place, um, sense of personal agency, um, sense of this is my government, this is us. All of that gets lifted uh, uh, and, and basically just kind of like, you know what, we don't need that. That's like 1700 stuff, you know, let's move into the 1950s where we can have the experts rule. But we're a, we're a well-networked, well-informed bunch of citizens who really need um, a much better, uh, more rigorous uh, public engagement process than uh, Act 46 is, is promising. I guess I just feel like if we're willing to erode and potentially give that up in schools, then when are we going to have that conversation about local town governance? You know, are we willing to give it up and say, well, it's not really efficient to have a local select board and a local, you know, road commissioner and all that. Some, you know, at what point do we just say, well, we can have more efficiency. You know, we need to be teaching people to stand up against central office, even if I am that person. We need to teach people to stand up against the state. We need to teach people to stand up against the federal government when it's appropriate to do that and have a voice. So I think in a multi-district supervisory union, you can exist in a way where you have shared roles and responsibilities, you have representatory democracy at a higher level, but you're also respecting the individual decisions of a local board. And that has existed. And people are saying that that is a broken system. We need to discontinue that system for centralized governance because that's what the rest of the country does. And it's like, why do we really want to be like the rest of the country? It's ridiculous. We should want to be like Vermont. So as far as speaking directly to somebody down in Essex or down Burlington Way, I'm not sure what I would say, really. I I'm not bad-mouthing the ideas of consolidation. I just don't think it is a good fit for our small communities that are that are dotted so many miles apart here where where we live in the northeast kingdom you know just as much as i'm in touch with my roots in holland folks out in island pond they feel the same way about island pond you know there's folks out in norton they're the same charleston it's just a sense of pride and it's a sense of who we are and what our lives stand for our little school graduated 12 students Last year, one moved out of the area and a fellow board member was at the junior high when they were giving out um, awards. Eight of our 11 kiddos were recognized. So this whole equality and, uh, you know, kids can get more from a bigger school is hogwash. It sounds good in the papers, but this, this school, as small as it is, turns out children that are doing very well on their next steps in education. We need help educating our children financially. There's no getting around that. But what we don't need is somebody that is 100 miles away telling us how to do it appropriately. You know, people really wish that they could just make it, streamline it, make it more efficient, less, uh, do I really have to hang out with this person who I don't like that much? And do I really have to listen to that story again that I already heard at the last meeting? And, and yet, 
That is what creates the social capital that helps us to move forward when really, really hard times come. Um, you know, when Hurricane Irene came to Vermont, we had a gigantic state, an army full of people who knew how to govern themselves. That, oh, you know, we're flooding. Okay, we need to organize ourselves. Let's see, these people, you know, you guys are the rescue people. You guys deliver the food. Um, it wasn't this sort of run around in everybody for themselves. It was quickly, how do we help our neighbors? So social capital is hugely valuable in crises, whether they are meteorological or political. Social capital is, is what you draw from. It's a fund that you draw from when times are tough. Um, and you need to pay into that fund. And you pay into that fund through those grumpy conversations that you have um, at town meeting. Or when you, when you have sat on a school board, even if you only sat on a school board for a couple years, you've had that experience. And then you go to elect officials. You go to vote on issues. You have a vastly stronger sense of the complexity that those people are dealing with. You're not likely to elect obstructionists. You're likely to elect people who will get the job done. Um, and when we see, you know, across America, people electing obstructionists, whether they're from the left or the right, um, we in Vermont, we know how to govern. And if you know, if you if you've been part of government in some element of your life, you are going to then go on to help create a more functioning government. It's part of it's part of how democracy functions. The legislature does not want to come out and say, we are going to close schools because they know how unpopular that would be. But they want to create the climate and, and the right um, mechanism and momentum that these larger educational districts, you know, through consolidated governance, would have the political will to close schools. I think they fully understand that. And, and the statements in the preamble of Act 46, you know, talk about that, you know, this should not be seen in any way as a, you know, encouragement of consolidating actual school districts, I think is just a flat out lie. And so what happens is that I mean, again, we've seen it many times across the United States. What happens is that the small schools close. If a town that um, is already struggling economically then loses its um, its heart, um, who's gonna who's gonna move to that town? Who is ever gonna move to a town where you know you have to ship your kid, you know, your first grade or an hour to to you know on a bus? I mean, who would want to live there? People move to towns where you know that there's a heart and a soul and a place. I mean, you look at some of these um, schools in Vermont where not only do the kids go to the school and not only do the parents go to the school, but when there's a basketball game, the whole town goes to the school. When there's a chorus concert, it's, it's, it's what's happening. And it's not just about wanting to see your fourth grader. It is the heart of the community. And that comes at an economic cost. Um, but removing it comes at a social cost, a huge social cost, and ultimately an economic cost. Those kinds of things just aren't, don't, those, those, those points of view didn't have a place at the table. What's the purpose of schools? I think policymakers are quick to disconnect school with community and see school from a a rational technical standpoint where schools have a function to educate the populace around you know literacy and math but not to be engaged in the community and I think it's it's really uh, short-sighted 
you know, if there's a, a family displaced by fire or something, what happens? The school immediately jumps into action. There's a spaghetti dinner. It brings everybody together. You raise money. But it's not only the raising of money that is a value. It is the sense of validation and support that you are there. We are there for you and we are connected with you. And I think the school plays a pivotal role in that. I, I don't think we should say, well, that's not the job of schools. I think schools, that is part of our job. If we were having a discussion that said, let's look at Vermont's schools based on education quality, and let's either improve or close the schools that have poor education quality, that would be an appropriate conversation to have. That's critical. Education quality standards, they've only just been implemented. And so the decisions that we're making right now based, uh, are, are not based on education quality because we don't have that information. And instead, it's the Act 46 is based purely on size, really. I mean, I see an anti-rural bias in this legislation that's not based on specific data that looks at the, at the kids' interests. I understand that many people are thinking of the children. I, I appreciate that. But there is a voice that was missing from the table, and that is the voice of rural communities. So, I, I mean, I don't blame, you know, Essex Town, Essex Junction, and, and was it Westford? They had already been playing with, you know, some level of consolidation. But they're, they're merging three communities in proximity to you know, Burlington, which is a very different culture than the Northeast Kingdom. And so maybe they were already predisposed and people, their sense of community is different and they will take advantage of that. And that will be touted as, look, look at this great example. And it's like, okay, maybe that is for them. That is a great example. But why are all the rest of us paying for that? So now, instead of the small schools grant paying for small schools in sometimes poor rural communities, we are now going to be paying incentives, tax incentives, to some of the most affluent communities we have in the state to centralize. Because somehow that that will create economy of efficiency and economy of scale. Well, they're just going to transfer that money into spending, and those students will have more opportunities while other people have less opportunities. I am truly convinced the law will, at the very least, support the haves to have what they have, and the have-nots will have less. And I, I, I think there is a huge political shift, and it was, you know, to take the crutches away from, you know, we're, we're supporting schools to stay small. It's like, yes, you are. And that's a, that may be okay, but that was perceived as a negative thing. We shouldn't provide an inducement to to keep a small school because that's not efficient and that's not functioning well and you're not offering a foreign language so you don't have equity of opportunity. And it's like, okay, we can trade all of that. And is the equity of opportunity being on the bus for an hour and 20 minutes? Is that the kind of opportunity we want to promote for students? Or now the fact that many rural poor parents who have a hard time connecting with school right now and being there for their children are now going to be feeling ostracized and intimidated by a much larger school that's not even in their town? Are they going to walk in those doors to be connected with that community? They're, they're, I mean, there is a lot of research that actually supports small schools and smaller environments mitigating the impact of poverty. Um, and those are the things that are not part of the conversation. The, it's always about what we will gain. 
is always about the efficiencies. It's always about the benefits. And I, I just feel like I get so mad at the fact that there's not a willingness to say, well, there will be winners and there'll be losers. So. Yep. Uh, so equality in education has nothing to do with how many students are roaming your walls. It has everything to do with the heart that the teachers and the administration and the townsfolk put into it. Uh, my, my grandmother was, uh, she taught in this school forever. And uh, she passed a lot of years ago, but she's still very respected in this town for what she had to do and, and for what she did in the, in the folks that she helped. And you, uh, you ask somebody down in Essex if they've got roots, roots that go that deep. People mostly like it here. A lot of people move here because they like it here. They like small towns. They like what it feels like to live in a place that feels like it is someplace. They figure Vermont towns have always been that way and always will be. But in the last few years, there's been a lot of talk about the inadequacies of our town meeting system and now the inefficiencies of our school system. So if we give away our local school boards, then we give away our schools. If we give away our town meetings, if we give away all the boring, ornery, and sometimes remarkable conversations between farmers and lawyers, doctors and writers and plumbers, flatlanders and natives, if we give away all this for some promise of efficiency and savings, aren't we giving away part of the reason we live here at all? Because when all that's gone, we're just people living in houses here and there along the road. In this show, you heard from Lincoln Patel, the chair of the Holland Vermont School Board, and from John Castle, superintendent of the North Country Supervisory Union, and from Susan Clark, town meeting moderator in Middlesex, Vermont, and co-author of a book called Slow Democracy, Rediscovering Community, Bringing Decision-Making Back Home. If you have comments on the show, or Act 46 in general, by all means write a comment at the bottom of the show page. This is Rumble Strip Vermont. I'm Erica Heilman. Thanks for listening.